Open up your Bible to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. I find that these are the most kind of expressive and treasured descriptions of salvation in the entire Bible. And so let me read to you Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler, the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under the wrath, as others were also. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So says God's holy and inerrant word. Amen. Amen. How many of us have had an event or period of time in our life where remembering the past helps us appreciate the present? I don't know about you, but maybe it's been a less desirable job that you have had in the past that makes you appreciate the job you have now that much more. I know that's true for me. I worked in Cask and Cleaver as a dishwasher. <laughs> maybe it's an unhealthy relationship with someone in the past that helps you appreciate your spouse that much more. Maybe it's a family experience where you've had an ability to change your family tree for Christ and you appreciate what you have now immeasurably more than you had in the past. My grandfather, who is sadly no longer with us, loved to tell stories. He was a magnificent storyteller. Some of them ended up in laughter some of them ended up in tears, and the best ones ended up in both. He just had a way that engaged you and brought the imagery to life. And I remember him telling a transformational story of, of his youth right after he got married to my grandmother. They headed out from here to start a cattle ranch in Missouri. And they were poor as poor could be. They had no money. They lived in a shack on the ranch. And he would laugh as he told the story because he said it was really romantic that my 
grandmother and him could count the stars at night. That's how many holes there were in the roof. (laughs) And the harder they worked, the harder it was. The more debt that they went into day in and day out. One time they were in town and they were buying the few groceries that they could. And they heard about a job opportunity in northern Arizona as a, as a logger, as a cutter. And so, out of desperation, my grandfather left my grandmother and their little daughter, my mom. And he went west. And he drove and he drove. And as he got there, he didn't have much money, so he lived in the car. And by the grace of God, he was able to get the job. He was able to bring the family out to him. All of a sudden, they were able to afford a home. They were able to afford food, clothing. But most importantly, it's on the northern rim of Arizona in a small church of no more than 10 people did my grandfather come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, those memories, those countless memories needed to be recalled. The bad memories needed to be recalled to make the good memories that much sweeter. And that's exactly what God is doing here through Paul in Ephesians 2.1. He says, this is who you were. This is who you were as unbelievers without salvation. It's in this honest understanding of who we were without Christ that allows us to appreciate who we are in Christ. Please hear me, church. Paul is not asking us to dwell nor live in the past. He's simply prompting us to remember in order to appreciate what we have in the present. Why is this so important? Because failure to remember what was quickly turns into failure to appreciate what is. You see, if we struggle to appreciate who we are as believers, we struggle to glorify God. And He deserves To be glorified. With that said, let's go ahead and take a stroll down memory lane. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world. What does it mean to be dead in the trespasses and sin? First and foremost, Paul describes a spiritual death as opposed to a physical death as He follows up by saying, in which you previously lived. You see, in other words, one can be very physically alive, but spiritually dead. This is remnant of the zombies in that 1968 film called The Night of the Living Dead. You remember it? Freaked me and my brother out. But you know something about the zombie, they don't know that they are dead, but they are. But they still go through all the motions, but they do not 
possess the life. I would say we're living in a spiritual apocalypse. There is a lot of people that are physically alive walking the face of the earth, but there is more people, just the same amount of people, that find themselves spiritually dead. Let's define it another way. We know Paul is not alluding to a physical death, but the imagery is similar to a physical death. You see, a good indication of physical death is the body's inability to respond or react to physical stimulus. You can't see, you can't hear, you can't taste, you can't smell, you can't touch. And the same is true with a spiritual death. A person who is spiritually dead cannot respond or react to anything spiritual. As one put it, no amount of love, care, and words of affection from God can draw a response. The spiritually dead have no way of responding to spiritual things. They are incapable of responding, and therefore they cannot live a spiritual life. Simply stated, a person is separated from the body by the way of physical death, just as a person is separated from God by way of spiritual death. If you were to ask people what frightens them most, physical death or spiritual death, the majority would respond with physical death. Believer and unbeliever alike. It reminds me of a scene from the, the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Has anybody seen that movie? Awesome movie. You have three convicts, right? Ever, Pete, Delmar. They just escaped from the chain gang down in the south. And you have Everett trying to convince these guys to go dig up this treasure that's been buried. He claims that it's been buried in this river bottom, this lake bottom. And they've got like four days before they're going to fill this lake and use it for hydroelectricity. So what do they do? They steal a car. And as they're driving this car, they come upon a young man sitting next to the road. And they notice that he had a guitar, and he's out here in the middle of nowhere. And they stop and they said... Well, where are you going? And he told them where he was going. They said, hop in. Young man's name is Tommy. And they asked him, what are you doing out in the middle of the road, Tommy? He said, I had an appointment with the devil. He said, what does the devil look like, Tommy? He said, he looks as white as you folk. He goes, well, why are you meeting the devil? He says, he basically says, he'll teach me to play the guitar in exchange for my soul. And Delmar says, oh, not your everlasting soul, Tommy. And Tommy responds by saying, I wasn't using it. Isn't that the truth? It's in this scene that we get an honest assessment as to how many people flippantly view their spiritual life. You see, we have a, a habit of trivializing 
spiritual death, if it's not tangible, then it must not be important. But we must open our eyes to the truth. 1 Timothy 4.8 says this, For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Just as we try to understand and protect ourselves from the causes of physical death, it's critically more important that we understand and protect ourselves from the causes of spiritual death. So what are the causes of spiritual death? It says right here, trespasses and sin. Trespasses means to to deviate from the right path, to go in the wrong direction. Sin means to miss the mark. If you applied it here, it's describing falling short of a goal, failing to measure up to the standard. Whose standard? God's holy standard. It's our inability to measure up to the standard of God's holiness. And here's the truth. No matter what we do or don't do, we aim towards the target. We strive towards the standards of God's holiness, but our efforts fall short and ultimately missing the mark. It says here in Romans 3.23, which I know Pastor Charlie went through yesterday, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of the glory of of God and therefore we have all sinned. Any time we fail to fulfill the purpose of glorifying God, it's sin. So often people believe that sin is the act of commission. It's something you've done. Something that you've done wrong. But more often than not, we find ourselves in the sin of omission. Knowing what we need to do, but not Doing it. Not living up to the standard of God's holiness. So what is the standard? Matthew 5.48 says, Be perfect. Therefore, your heavenly Father is perfect. 1 Peter 1.16 says, Be holy because I am holy. Referring back to Leviticus. God's standard of holiness, holiness is nothing short of of perfection. And as much as we try to glorify God in word and deed, we will continue to fail because we are sinful by nature. Romans 5.12 says, There just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. All sinned. Just as we inherited the physical characteristics of our parents, we also inherited a sinful nature. David speaking to this in Psalm 51.5 says, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. The inheritance of our sinful nature goes all the way back to our original earthly father found in Adam. We are not liars because we lie. We lie because we are liars. 
We are not gossipers because we gossip. We gossip because we are gossipers. We're not cheaters because we cheat. We cheat because we are cheaters. And listen, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. No matter what we do, the energy we put forth, we will always fall short of God's holy standard. So how do we respond? Instead of seeing it for what it is and knowing we are in desperate need of a Savior, we start to measure ourselves not against the standard set by God. We start to measure ourselves against those around us. As long as I am doing that, I am fine. As long as I don't say that, I should be good. Look at what they're doing. I would never do that. I would never allow myself to behave in that way. I want to give you an illustration here. Picture, if you will, on this cold and rainy day. That you are standing on a seashore. The sun is on your face. You listen to this, the waves lightly lapping against the shore. The cool water just gently kisses your feet. Are we all there? Yeah. In, the dear, in the near distance, you see an island just offshore. And let's just say that that island represents God's holiness and perfection. And where we stand at that moment represents where we are in relationship to that standard. And what I do is I ask everybody to jump with everything that they got, with all your energy, your power, and your might, to that island. So all you take a few steps back. Maybe some of the older take a few more steps back. And we jump. And maybe some of us hit four feet, five feet, six feet, seven, eight feet. Maybe you're Mike Powell from the 1991 Olympics and you go 29 feet. <laughs> now there are varying degrees of success. But only in relationship to one another. Because no matter how far we jumped, even if it's further than most, we still fell short of reaching God's holiness, His standard. We still fell short of getting to the island. As MacArthur puts it, and I appreciate it, that is why the good, helpful, kind, considerate, self-giving person needs salvation as much as the multiple murder on death row. The person who is a good parent, loving spouse, honest worker, and civic humanitarian needs Jesus Christ to save him from eternal condemnation of hell as much as the skid row drunk of the heartless terrorist. They do not lead equally sinful lives, but they are equally in the state of sin, equally separated from God and from spiritual life. Simply doing good is insufficient for salvation. Luke 6.33 if you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. 
You see, there are all kinds of people in this world who do good deeds, but any deed that is performed without God's glory as its chief end is weighed and found wanting. And if further it seems people try to jump on their own accord, the less they believe in their need for a Savior, only to find themselves in the midst of the sea without salvation and doomed to die. John 16, 8, we find Jesus in the midst of a farewell speech to his disciples, telling him that he must go in order for the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to come. And Jesus starts to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin because they do not believe in me. The sin in which the Holy Spirit will convict is the sin of disbelief. Disbelief in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's the sin of separation, the sin of rejection. This is the spiritual state of death being dead and our trespasses in sin. You see, unbelievers are not in the need of a resuscitation is there is nothing we can do to give them for the life they need. They are in need of a resurrection, which only God provides through Jesus Christ. It says not only were we dead in trespasses and sins, the scripture says we followed the course of this world. What is the world? It's defined as a, a structure, a world order, which represents an agreed upon System of values absent of God. It's fallen humanity collectively defines what is right and what is wrong, what is treasured, what is worthless, what is prized, what is despised. That is the world. It's a set of ideals, opinions, attitudes, principles, and standards. For the unbeliever, it's what controls or governs and shapes their lives, their thinking, their passions, their emotions, their desires. Nothing is excluded from its influence and nothing is outside of its reach. That is the world. That's why Paul in Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And you'll notice... But Paul says, following the course of this world, it's the age, the period of time, the prevailing ideologies that shape our culture, religion, politics, education, science, technology, music, and art. It says, we, prior to salvation, walked following the course of this world, which means our lifestyle, our conduct was in accordance with a system, values, Absent of God. And let me tell you, the absence of God is the presence of Satan. The prince of the power of air. It says, following the course of the world, following the prince, the power of the air. He's talking about Satan. 1 John 5.19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 indicates that Satan is the god of this world. Let us not for a moment allow ourselves to be deceived. 
We may as believers look at this world and see the utter chaos, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Satan is very intentional. He's an effective leader who's developed and organized this system, a world order that opposes God and leads people to eternal death. It's not by accident. Ephesians 6, 11 reminds us, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the what? The schemes of the devil. Schemes are not haphazard events or accidents. They are the result of a well-thought-out plan implemented with patience, diligence, and discipline with measured results that end in tragedy. And please understand that one of the biggest schemes that Satan has introduced into this world is for us to disbelieve in his existence. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. The only way the lion can capture its prey is for the prey to think the lion doesn't exist. You cannot see, run from, confront, or fight against that which you do not see or you do not understand. How many of us have seen the Wizard of Oz? And they come into this court and they see this mighty thing at the very end with all the smoke and all that's going on, the wizard. Only to find out it's this little man standing behind a curtain with all his wheels and levers. And that's what Satan wants us to do to confront the manifestation of sin without confronting the source of sin. You see, it's not until we identify him, his systems, his schemes, will we ever see the world or this age for what it truly is. You see, the course of this world is wide. It's broad and it encompasses a lot of ground. I'm reminded of Matthew 7, 13 through 14. It says, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. Underline that. There are many that go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life. And few, few find it. How wide is the wide path? Wide enough for Satan to get us going in a general direction and end up where he wants us to be. It's wide enough to fit all the man-made religions of this world and the people who follow them. It's wide enough for all the good excuses and all the people who make them. It's wide enough to fit all the well-intentioned who thought they were doing good and doing good was good enough. You see, the path and the gate that leads to destruction is so wide that most people don't even know that they're walking on it or walking through it. So how do we save ourselves? How do we save ourselves? 
We were dead in our trespasses and sins, walking the course of the world. How do we save ourselves? And the answer is we can't. We can't save ourselves. But look at verse 4, but God. Can I get an amen? But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. It is God's gift to us. God is merciful and loving. But he is also a God of justice. Romans 6.23 we read, For the wages of sin is death. Our sin requires a penalty to be paid, and the penalty is death. Not only is it the physical death, but it is a spiritual death. These are the consequences of the wide road. Romans 3, 23 through 25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through redemption that is in who? Christ Jesus, whom God, God put forward as propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, through unmerited and undeserved favor, is sacrificed to pay the penalty to cleanse the debt by dying on our behalf. When Christ was sacrificed on the cross and rose from the grave, it gave us a new opportunity. It gave us a path through a narrow gate. It says here, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So what is our role? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he, in this way he gave his one and only son. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We must have faith. It says Ephesians 2.8, for you are saved by grace through faith. This is not of your own doing. Faith is a God-given conviction. As one put it here, a God-given conviction that the promise of resurrection life, forgiveness of sins, the eternal heaven through Jesus Christ is true. And that conviction moves the will to ask God for that gift. That's saving faith. But it's crucial we understand and remember that the gift of salvation is motivated by God's grace and given to us through His gift of faith. It's by God's grace and His gift to us of faith. Simply put, His grace is a gift and your faith is a gift. It's neither something we deserve nor can we earn. Think back to Lazarus. Prior to Jesus' resurrecting him. He was physically dead. He could not respond to anything physical. 
And the same is true with those who are spiritually dead. So how is it possible for someone who is spiritually dead to resurrect themselves? It's as impossible as Lazarus resurrecting himself. The answer is it's impossible. Men are completely, and women, but mostly men, are completely depraved. And as such, have no ability to prompt their own faith. It's a gift. We have faith because God gives us the ability to believe. And because of the ability to believe, we receive His undeserved grace by which we obtain salvation when we believe in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is not a result of works. There's nothing we can do to earn it. Nothing. Now what I just said is paramount. It distinguishes Christianity from all other forms of religion on the face of this planet. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, Judaism, even Catholicism. All of them have a works-based requirement for salvation. They believe in some way, shape, or form that there is something that they can do day in and day out that's going to earn them a position with God in heaven. But if saving faith is dependent on our abilities, if it's something we do, if it's our work, we would, believe me, we would take credit for our own faith. But notice what Paul warns us in 8. He says, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If this is something that I've worked for, then I deserve what I've worked for, and I should get all the accolades for the things that I've accomplished in my life. But what Paul is saying here is, what you have been given, do not boast, as this has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the gift of God that He's given you. That's how we need to understand it. In this grace and faith that we have, that's a gift from God, I can guarantee you that Amazon Prime can't deliver this. Amen? Amen. This morning, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you find yourself in the midst of trespasses and sin, if you find yourself following the course of this world, I promise you there's hope. If you're interested in what you've heard today, if you sense that there is some truth in what has been said today, then it's regeneration. 
God is working on your heart to orient it towards him. And if that is true today, we would love as pastors and elders to talk to you about next steps. To talk to you about what it means to be in relationship in Jesus Christ. So you too can point to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 and say, yes, this is who I was. But by the grace of God, this is who I am. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.